Hello and welcome back to Her Education, the podcast. Can you believe it's already August? I am absolutely astounded by how fast this year is actually going. I mean, I feel like I say this every single year, but the end of August um, means that there is one more month of content left inside my mentorship program. And then the next year um, we'll be opening up intakes in December for 2024. So I'm super excited because next month is actually the hormones module inside the mentorship program. So we're talking about the menstrual cycle. We're talking about endometriosis obviously being like a women's health specific condition. We're also talking about transition into menopause and how all of this feeds into pelvic floor dysfunction and pelvic health issues at those stages of the life cycle. So I love it. Now, today's topic, however, is a little bit of an, um, let's say inspiration for the topic is um, the hip, the hip. And this is because if you're not already aware from my social media, I've started shooting out a monthly email titled Research Spotlight. And this is actually uh, a place where I share maybe like a favorite piece of literature or a resource, maybe like a research paper or something that has actually taught me something that I think is cool. Um, and I also thought that you might like it too. So I wanted to share that with anyone who is also interested. Now, the goal of this email send out is basically to cover findings key takeaways um, and what that actually might look like in a sense of how you would implement that in clinical practice or what would you do with this information? Uh, what other research might you look at based on this information or I don't know, whatever it is that I feel like I take away from it. I want to share that with you. However, I also want to stress that this also looks like a very easy to understand summary that is basically written like I'm speaking to you. I did this because I really love easy to understand content that makes sense and doesn't make me feel dumb. There are so many times where I have either read a piece of literature or I've been in other health professional groups where I'm like, what the hell is that even talking about? And I've either just like stopped reading the paper because it's like not making sense anymore, or I've just found there's too much jargon, too many acronyms, way too much in-depth science, and I just don't learn anything from it. So I walk away feeling like I'm an actual idiot um, and I don't belong in those communities if it's in, in a group. Um, so yeah, I basically wanted to talk about research on a really easy to understand um, way. So yeah, if you prefer the super fancy written emails when there's like all this jargon and science-based stuff and like clinical terms and yeah, that stuff, then probably not a place that you will enjoy uh, my emails. So that is just a warning in case you are like that. Be prepared for it to be easy to understand, like you're listening to me talk to you, basically. Now, if you want to actually join that email list, I have a link in the show notes and I basically am going to, well, I'm, I'm committing to sending these emails out on the first of every month. Um, the, the last one didn't actually go out on the first because I decided to start this after the month had begun. So for those of you that already received the last email, that was a taster. From here on in, we're going every single month on the first sharing a piece of literature, resource, research paper, whatever that might be, um, that I think is pretty cool. And ultimately think that you might also think is really cool. Now, before we jump into the deep content of this topic, I just want to ask a really big favor of you. And 
I would find this really, really helpful if you would either rate and review the podcast, tell me what you think about it, helps me reach more people and ultimately build the reputation of EPs within the health and fitness realm. And if you're a trainer who wants to be just highly educated, this is also relevant for you because it is really important that we start to, I guess, bridge the gap in knowledge about what we can do with exercise prescription for certain health conditions, as opposed to just no one really knowing what we do (laughs) or even that we are helpful in those sense. Um, So if you could share this also among your community, Um, if you post this anywhere on your social media, please tag me. So tag at her.education underscore so that I can see it. And then thank you personally for being part of my community because I love connecting with you on an individual level. Um, So that means I get to see who really loves the content, what you think about it. And I'd love to connect with you also. So please, please share. Um, It's going to help the overall goal for this platform. Now, getting stuck into it, the August email that went out discussed a paper that highlighted the relationship between the hip and the pelvic floor. Now, I'm going to put the resource, the resource, resource, (laughs) I can't even talk. I'm going to put the reference in the show notes. If you want to look further in that, you can. Um, I found this really helpful paper um, in looking at the changes in stress urinary symptoms or stress urinary incontinence symptoms in women who actually underwent a total hip replacement. So I really liked this paper. I talk about it in the mentorship program where we're looking at more like the hip function, hip mechanics, and why it is so important to be looking behind this. So I wanted to share a little bit about that here. I went into a little bit more detail in the email, but I want to basically talk about uh, a quick summary in what that entails. Now, the study participants in this paper reported urinary incontinence symptoms pre-surgery and then three months post their hip replacement um, as well. So of the 189 females that were in the study, 81 of them experienced stress urinary incontinence before the surgery. So that is a statistic of like 43% of women who had hip issues or were going undergoing hip replacements had stress incontinence. I think that's a pretty big statistic to start with. Anyway, 64% of those women who actually experienced urinary incontinence actually improved their symptoms post-surgery. 64% improved urinary incontinence symptoms with a hip surgery. Blows me, blows my mind. Anyway, 32% of them actually remained the same and 4% actually worsened. So there was like varying outcomes, I guess, at this point. But Let's just like keep that in mind. Now, in those who were continent pre-surgery, so that was like they didn't experience any urinary incontinence symptoms before their surgery, 97% of them remained unchanged, which I guess you would expect, and 3% actually worsened their symptoms, which I also find a really interesting statistic, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Now, I actually really hate when you read research and it doesn't 100% back your theories which I mean is like every research, right? Like we would, I guess that's why we do evidence-based practice because we are actually executing or prescribing exercise based on research. But there's always times where I'm like, yes, this definitely helps. And then the research doesn't prove it. And we're like, how does this work then? Like I'm seeing these patterns, but like the research tells us otherwise, like how does this even work? I really hate that. It makes me annoyed, but that's part of evidence-based practice, right? And we should be following the research and using it to explore th- further theories. Um, so anyway, I want to talk about like, well, what can we actually get from these results then if it tells us that there are varying outcomes? 
I think that's also really important, being able to like further explore ideas based on what you find in pieces of research that you might then go look into further. So the things that I particularly took away from this paper in regard to the what they were doing, the outcome that they had, and also maybe other things that I considered based on knowledge that I have around pelvic floor and hip. Now, four points. Number one was 43% of women with hip pathology, and in the case of this paper, it was um, OA, have incontinence. It, is it actually related? Who knows? We don't know. We don't know directly from this paper, but it might be something that you need to ask your hip-based clients. Does hip issue equal pelvic floor problem or potential pelvic floor problem? So it is definitely something that you should be considering in all hip clients. So that's the first takeaway point. Number two is that 64% of women who had incontinence pre-surgery had improvements in symptoms three months after their surgery. Now, the rehab process post-surgery actually had no specific pelvic floor components to it, or at least the research paper didn't say they actually addressed pelvic floor function in their, re um, in their rehab exercise program. But the program did say that it encompassed active and passive range of motion exercises, as well as full weight bearing from day one of the surgery. So hip range of motion and hip weight bearing exercises seem to be very helpful for pelvic floor function regardless of whether they were doing indirect pelvic floor work within those exercises. I'm going to assume that they didn't based on like the actual purpose of the research. However, it clearly helps. Number three takeaway, some women actually had worse symptoms post-surgery, which is quite odd, right? Like if we are, if the majority of them actually improved, um, what mechanism or physiology would actually make it worse? So there are a couple of different thoughts around this. In my experience with clients who who have, um, let's say, too much tension in the hips and in the pelvic floor tend to, like these people tend to hide urinary incontinence symptoms until everything actually relaxes. And that's when we actually see issues around weakness in the tissue. And this is where they generally tend to start presenting with incontinence. Now, this almost always happens in clients who have pelvic floor tightness where we kind of like begin all the lengthening exercises and we start down training their pelvic floor issue and like bringing a little bit more laxity in the system because there's so much tension there. And this is usually in the first, like, I don't know, two to four weeks that we start doing everything. And then they start presenting with all of these symptoms around leaking that they actually didn't have before. Now, obviously this is not ideal for them. And they usually get really quite nervous about this. And I'm always trying to explain that initially, but it's actually really good for me to know because this is probably a pretty good indicator that they're achieving a much better relaxation phase of like, you know, when they're trying to actually connect to their pelvic floor, which is what we want initially. So then we can obviously move into strength exercises after that. But it's a pretty good indicator that um, unless they're bearing down and pushing out urine, then it's telling us that the tissue is letting go a little bit and now it's ready for some strength training. Um, and the other thing was like that this study did not assess the pelvic floor pre-surgery. So they didn't go internally and look at what exactly is going on for each person, why they have incontinence symptoms, why some are worse than others. So I would say that many of these clients that actually had worse symptoms potentially had a lot of pelvic floor clenching happening, uh, maybe due to pain around the hip. And um, restoring their hip mechanics actually reduced a lot of the tension. And now they actually need more strength work. So yeah, those are sort of the theories that like maybe why they didn't improve things and maybe why things actually got a little bit worse. Who knows? But 
Let's ex explore those theories. And the fourth point of this whole takeaway that I took from this paper was in the discussion section of the study, it talks about the beautiful relationship between the pelvic floor and the obturator internus muscle through fascial connections. Now, they pose the idea that tension in the hip muscle impacts range of motion and strength at the hip, which feeds into the pelvic floor. So if we're rectifying um, this and building hip strength and improving range of motion, indirectly, we're going to improve pelvic floor strength and function, which I guess really matches the other theories that I talked about in the first two takeaways of this. So yeah, pretty crazy hip relationship with pelvic floor. I think it's really, really cool. Personally, I love to actually dive further into that whole scope of like well, what's happening outside of the pelvic floor, because we know that not always pelvic floor exercises are solving people's problems. So this paper alone tells us that hip mechanics are super important for pelvic floor function. And let me tell you, that is absolutely true from my own experience with um, people that I treat and the results that they get. We know that there is a few deep hip rotator group muscles that really impact the pelvic floor, like that of the obturator internus, but also like the piriformis um, and the other deep hip muscles as well. And you know what? It's not always just about those group of muscles either. And this is why I wanted to talk a little bit more about the global muscle group around the hips and the pelvis, especially that I didn't really touch on in the email, but I wanted to explore a little bit further. When we look at things like human movement in general, when mechanics are not optimal because we have maybe imbalance in muscle function and strength between opposing muscle groups, or even maybe there's like length tension relationship issues going on, this will affect how a joint will actually move. And if it doesn't move that well, then we're going to see movements in other places happening to make that movement happen. This is what we I guess, refer to as compensation patterns. And a really great example of this is when we see excessive lumbar, maybe rotation or movement through the lumbar spine, when the hips lack rotation, or we have issues maybe even with thoracic rotation. So we know that the hips and the thoracic motion through walking and rotation really um, is important. And we can see a lot of compensation patterns that happen when something is missing in that system and it needs to find another way to either balance the body out. Now, if we think about this concept with the hip and how poor muscle balance around the hip, like glute med weakness or glute mac weakness is usually a problem, this is going to impact the deeper tissues. Um, and we might even see more tension in these deeper hip muscles. So like, you know, the obturator internus, like we've just discussed from the research paper, and this is going to feed into the pelvic floor and prevent restoring pelvic floor function. But it also might mean that poor hip mechanics is potentially the reason that the pelvic floor isn't functioning properly in the first place. So looking at the pelvic floor is great for function and so is the deep hip muscle looking at that too. But in the real big bang for your buck, when we're looking at improving pelvic floor health is also assessing the global hip muscles as well. And we're assessing hip mechanics. And in general, um, we want this to all feed into the pelvic floor um, and address pelvic floor dysfunction. So we need to look outside the pelvic floor. We need to look at the deeper hip muscles as well because they feed fascially into the pelvic floor or have some sort of connection in there. Then we also need to look at the hip mechanics and why are the hip mechanics not optimal? Like the global muscle balance, the function of the hip, the range of motion of the hip, all of it to see whether or not we are actually impacting or getting, you know, anything else is holding back pelvic floor dysfunction or re resolving pelvic floor dysfunction in our clients. So I guess it's a lot about, you know, the whole system. And I talk about that all the time. I love talking about how 
the whole body feeds into the pelvic floor. But we could look at all of those other things in deeper dives, but that's probably a chat for another day. But in a sense, I want to talk about these two key things in a sense of pelvic floor health and the hip. Number one is if you have a client who has hip issues, are you actually asking about pelvic floor dysfunction? Because it could be the reason that they have hip issues. So tension through the pelvic floor, maybe that's the problem that's feeding into the hip socket. Who knows? Maybe they've got hip issues from pelvic floor problems. Very common. Or is their hip causing them to have pelvic floor issues? Same concept, I guess, as like the what comes first, the chicken or the egg, you know, scenario. Um, Is it the pelvic floor causing the hip issue or is it the hip causing the pelvic floor issue? I guess you don't really know, but diving into both topics if they're presenting to you for either one is really important. So this means addressing the pelvic floor may actually help the hip function and relieve hip pain or issues for your client. So keep that in mind. The second thing that's, I guess, clinically practical or I guess an implication for clinical practice is if you have pelvic floor clients, are you asking about hip pain? Are you assessing hip function? Do you need to add in maybe a range of motion test or a hip or muscle strength assessment around the hip to really understand about about more about what's feeding into their specific pelvic floor symptoms? Because it is so important, especially in those who have pelvic floor tension. And also prolapse really does help as well. But I guess all pelvic floor dysfunction because we're going to get compensation patterns everywhere. It's been really interesting that I guess hearing when I initially recruit for the mentorship program, most of the mentees, their biggest concern is that they don't see any women's health clients right now. Um, They mostly see those with hip pain or back pain, knee and ankle injuries. And their goal is usually to, I guess, transition into women's health clients, but they don't have the knowledge to help them. Um, So they don't really know how to get those clients in to practice on because they don't have the knowledge. So like, I guess that's the same. You need the knowledge first before you can help these people, right? So, but it's so interesting hearing them talk about that initially. And as we kind of get further into the content and we sort of start taking on more of that knowledge around drivers of pelvic floor dysfunction, nearly every one of them say that all of their clients are actually women's health clients or they ask the question like, does every person benefit from this work? And my answer is usually yes. And that is because I am a big believer in like core stability or like the central core component is so important to master to then move your limbs off. So if you're having issues with upper body, you're having issues with your neck, you're having issues with your knees or your hips or your ankles, like there are potentially impacts um, or implications that are feeding up into the pelvis or into the pelvic floor because you know, maybe stabilization is lacking somewhere and it's feeding somewhere else. Anyway, that's a whole nother debate, but it's really interesting to hear that like a lot of their clients actually are pelvic floor clients or women's health clients. And they've never had to worry about asking this thing because their client is actually presenting with a hip issue and they've just been doing all this hip work or they've had like low back pain. So they're doing like maybe like teaching more hinging movements, or they're looking at core stability or maybe like what their general daily life, um, how they like their movement strategies actually are. So, but in reality, it does actually boil down to pelvic floor work um, for a lot of these ones, not all of them, but most must clients that they tend to see around those similar sort of categories of, I guess, uh, problems that these people are coming them to them with. So yeah, consider that. Start asking. I mean, the worst part is that you've got to ask about, if you're starting to ask about pelvic floor, you probably should know how to do some sort of rehab for it. Um, maybe you don't, but it would might be interesting for you to start navigating those conversations and seeing how common this actually is. 
So there you have it, the hip and the pelvic floor, a beautiful relationship that needs to be happy and healthy, just like just like human relationships, really. Um, so yeah, really, really, really important. I'm going to dive more into the hip a little bit later on, but I hope that has given you some insight into like how hip is going to, how the hip really does impact the pelvic floor. If you haven't joined um, the research email list, jump on that. If you want to get them there every month, they're going to go out on the first. Um, I share what the research paper is and all my key takeaways. So hopefully you really enjoy that. Thank you for being here today. And I really, really appreciate your support. Don't forget to share this episode um, with your friends, your colleagues, your socials, tag me if you do. I'd really, really appreciate it. And if you really want to write a review, that would be also super fantastic. And I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks again. I'll see you in the next one. Bye.